0: A lot of Christmassy things going on now, which is good. Got a band concert tonight with uh, one of the grandchildren. So that's, they're always fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> So awesome.
1: do they make a smaller trombone for a 10-year-old? Because that seems like it'd be pretty hard for Not, a 10-year-old arm to reach.
0: <laughs> no, they don't make it uh, the lo- uh, shorter, but they only use the shorter notes. <laughs>
1: oh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Hi, I'm Aaron Miller. And this is How to Help, a podcast about having a life and career of meaning, virtue, and impact. This is Season 1, Episode 8, Intervention. How to Help is sponsored by Merit Leadership, home of the Business Ethics Field Guide. You might be familiar with the ABC television show called What Would You Do? Each episode takes actors into the real world where they stage a dilemma for the unsuspecting people nearby. Most of the episodes are designed to see if anyone will step up to help a stranger in need. It's like Candid Camera, but in search of good Samaritans. Some of the most popular episodes involve situations like this, a mom abusing her young son in a restaurant, a veteran who can't afford the grocery bill at the register and a black customer getting racially profiled by a high-end retail employee. The show resonates with us because it reflects two important ideas. First, We all love to see a person step up to protect or help a stranger. But second, we all know how hard it can sometimes be for us to be the hero. We know it's hard because according to our research in the Business Ethics Field Guide, this is one of the most common dilemmas that people face. We call it intervention. This kind of dilemma happens when we see something going wrong, but we're not sure how to proceed. This episode today is from our book. My guest is my good friend and co-author, Bill O'Rourke. Since this is my first time having him on the podcast, let me briefly introduce him. Bill is a former longtime executive at Alcoa, the global aluminum manufacturer. During his time there, Bill worked across the entire company. Among his many roles, he was vice president of Environment, Health, and Safety, vice president of Global Business Services, chief information officer, and president of Alcoa, Russia. He's faced just about every ethical dilemma under the sun, and he has a lot of fascinating stories to share. We're going to start the episode with this one. It's one thing to confront a rude stranger in a store, but it's something else when we have to stand up to people we know and work with. In Bill's case, one of those moments involved the CEO of his company.
0: Sure. I, I, I remember whenever our CEO, he named his brother the president of our European operations. And the brother was going to report to the CEO, of course. And that sure seems like nepotism. Yeah. And you can imagine that there was discussion throughout the corporation Well, I was the corporate auditor at the time, so intervening or not was really appropriate for me to ask the question. Uh, So I decided I was going to do that. I went to his office and I said, you can't name your brother the president of the European operations unless you get board approval and you disclose it in the proxy statement." Yeah. So he started our conversation by saying, the last time I looked, I was the CEO, not you. <laughs> and that's not a good way to start the conversation with the CEO. No. But he asked me then, what, what if What if I don't do that? I said, well, your outside auditors are not going to approve our financials, which is a death knell for a publicly traded company. Yeah. So he dismissed me. He said, I'll get back to you later. And he did exactly what I expected him to do. He called the outside auditor and asked him that question. And the auditor repeated what I said. Of course, I had called the outside auditor before I went to the CEO's office. So the CEO decided he was going to get board approval. He did. I have found that board approval was pretty much a rubber stamp, and it was in that case. Hmm. And he also agreed to put it into the proxy statement. So he did it. I've reflected on this, and I really think the CEO was actually protected from public criticism.
1: I think he was. So Bill is obviously a pretty brave guy, but there's more going on in this story than just being brave. Knowing that he had to intervene, Bill did a lot more than just muster his courage to have a hard conversation. He demonstrated a lot of skill. For example, he called the outside auditor ahead of time, knowing that he was going to need backup. In this episode, Bill is going to help us learn some skills that make us better at intervening. One of them is right here in this story.
0: But still, he he did what was appropriate there. What was important in this intervention was not to go and say, you can't do that. What's important is to have an out or the conditions under which you can do a certain thing so that you can at least address it that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting insight because I think most people think of intervention as stopping a bad thing from happening and maybe not necessarily as diverting into a good thing. Does that make sense? Like there's a difference between stopping something short versus diverting energy into something that maybe is nobler, you know, more ethical, more virtuous. I, I mean, has that been your experience like with per- interventions?
0: Exactly. Or providing the, uh, the cautions. You need to do this, this, and this before that would be appropriate. And I think that helps people to understand why also in addition to doing the right thing.
1: So tip number one. If you want to stop a bad thing from happening, you might succeed with redirection or conditions. This works because whatever is motivating the wrong thing won't disappear just because you get in the way. You might just need to redirect that person's desires or lay out conditions for them that will lead to a more ethical outcome that also meets their needs. This is just one example of how intervening in the right way can be tricky. Here are some other examples of things that Bill says to keep in mind.
0: A primary one is it's not my place to intervene. That's someone else's job. Uh, well, even though you aren't, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to intervene in that case. You could work tactfully to get that dilemma into the hands of the person who is responsible to intervene, and, and make sure they aren't ignorant about the situation. Another time, uh, especially is when you see something that you think is wrong, but you're not really sure. You really yeah. don't have all the facts or the perspective. And boy, I found that out when, when I've been involved in any kind of investigation. I found out there's not two sides to the issue. There's usually five or six. And until you have all those facts, intervening could be wrong. You really need to take the time to collect all that information. Uh, another one is that bothered me in my career was when something is too trivial to intervene. It's really minor. In, in that case, You can still intervene, but you just don't make a big deal out of it. So you don't uh, turn them in. You don't put an article in the corporate newspaper about their bad behavior. You just quietly and silently pull them aside and tell them that you observe this. Your impression is that that might not be appropriate, and maybe you'll make them a better employee in the process.
1: You can tell from all of this great advice that each intervention dilemma is unique, and it requires a thoughtful approach to resolve it well. But the complexity of an intervention dilemma isn't usually the hardest part for most people. And again, we know this from our research. The big fear is the reputational risk that comes with intervening. After all, people don't like being criticized, and that can hurt your relationship with others.
0: Uh, when you get in these situations, that raises an issue. You get in a situation and, and you wonder, are people going to like you? No, they're not. They're clearly not going to like you if you intervene. You're questioning integrity or motives or behavior, and, and that's a tough p- position. But I don't think we're after admiration in these areas or in our career. We're after respect. And I'll bet if he went back to that president or the CEO in the uh, naming his brother situation and asked, do you respect that guy? I think they'd say yes.
1: It can feel scary doing something like that, but it pays off in the long run. If you're really worried about people liking you, the secret is to consistently treat others with kindness and respect. That way you have the trustworthy reputation you need when it's time to intervene. Bill notes that we too easily trade away respect just to avoid conflict. We confuse people liking us with people respecting us. We need to think about our reputation in a different way.
0: I, I've had that. I've had students address that to me in different ways. I had one student from the University of Florida told me she was on her way to class one day and she got a text from a friend that said, I can't make it a class today. Please sign me in. And I asked her, well, what did you do? And then her answer was, I played like I didn't get the text until class was over. Oh. So she tried to <laughs> run away from this ethical dilemma rather than face up to it. And I told her what you should have done was text back right away. No, I won't do that. That's wrong. I would never ask you to do that. I wouldn't put you in a position like that. Don't ask me to do something that's wrong. And think about that. Now you've just established your character and integrity for that person. They'll probably never ask you again. And that's not so bad. So my recommendation when people say I get to shy away from this because of what people will think of me, that's exactly what you should be thinking. What do you want them to think of you? If they think you have character and integrity and and they respect you for that, that's not so bad.
1: But Bill does note that you don't want to go overboard.
0: Yeah, there's probably another side side to this, Aaron. It's uh, wearing intervention on your sleeve. (laughs) If, If you become holier than thou, and you're the person that walks around the office telling people that they're wrong doing this and doing that and doing that, that's not right either.
1: And now for a word from our sponsor. Every organization has a culture around ethics, whether or not it's deliberate. As a leader, if you're not cultivating the right ethical environment, you're taking your chances that the people around you will make wise choices. At Merit Leadership, we help companies of any size do regular exercises to build a deliberate culture of ethics. Our Exercising Ethics program reflects the reality that culture comes from what we do together, not from looking at a screen on our desk. Whether you work in a small team or a company with thousands of employees, we provide engaging ethics exercises that get people talking and sharing their values. To learn more, click the link in the show notes or visit MeritLeadership.com. Sometimes intervention threatens more than just some injured egos. You might face a situation where your career is on the line. Here we're talking about those times when really bad stuff is taking place, the kind of behavior that could seriously hurt other people. And you're in a position to stop it. But if you speak up, you'll face a lot of backlash. How do you have the courage for those moments?
0: It it might be uh, helpful If we talk a little bit about whistleblowing, which is, I guess, one of the high points of intervention is when you decide to blow the whistle on a corporation, they're usually high profile kinds of cases. Uh, But if you think about blowing, once you decide to do that, you have to blow the whistle all the way. I remember that there were at least three employees who initially blew the whistle at Enron, uh, but then they were given promotions or bonuses to buy their silence and it worked. They kept quiet. Well, at the end of all the litigation, I think those three went to jail. But when Sharon Watkins blew the whistle, I think she was offered bonuses and promotions as well. But she said, no, I want the situation handled. They didn't handle it. She said, if it's not handled, I'm going to have to go public with it. It wasn't handled. She went public and and she sure didn't end up in jail. She ended up being the hero of the uh, entire situation.
1: Sharon Watkins was the Enron whistleblower, and her commitment to do the right thing was incredibly inspiring. History remembers her far better than the other Enron executives. The key is to prepare for moments like these. Bill explains that we're much more likely than we realize to face what he calls quitting decisions.
0: I've told uh, students that they can expect to have two quitting decisions in their life. And I believe they'll arise whenever a situation occurs that is so bad, it has to be corrected or you can't work there anymore. Hmm. And you need to raise that issue. It needs to be corrected or you have to be told that you were wrong in your accusation. And if not, then I think you can't work at an organization like that.
1: How do you prepare for that moment? I mean, there are quitting decisions in a lot of people's career path. And how do you make sure that you're ready for it when the time comes?
0: It's. It's very, very difficult. Hopefully you have the self-confidence that, that you're going to end up on your feet because of this. Your righteousness is going to serve your right because it is the right thing to do. And your motive needs to be positive. You want to be trying to make the corporation a better place. You want to be correcting wrongs. If you have a negative intent or an ulterior motive, I'm not going to give you the courage that you need to do this. But if you're driven by the positive intent and righteousness, I think that'll help you.
1: That last part about having a good intent is critical. If you blow the whistle, your intentions will immediately be questioned, along with your character. Be sure you're doing it for the right reasons.
0: And then you have to ask yourself that. Am I I doing this honestly? And am I doing it with facts? And especially, do I have a good intent here? If you have a positive intent, that means you want to correct the situation and you want to make the accused employee a better person in the future. If that's your intent, I think you're on the right path. However, if you have a hidden motive or an alternative agenda, uh, that's not a good intent to be proceeding with.
1: Because most people think of whistleblowing when they think of an intervention dilemma. They don't realize that this is a dilemma faced all the time by leaders. It's true that pretty much anyone in an organization may come across a situation where they need to intervene. But Bill's experience has taught him that leaders have to intervene all the time even in small ways.
0: In fact, I try to make the point uh, to a lot of employees that if you're a leader of a work group, a department, a company, if you're the leader, you have an obligation to intervene. That's part of your responsibility. If you hear off-color jokes, profanity, passing inappropriate photos, things like that, and you're the boss, you better intervene because you're the one that's going to establish the culture. You're going to make sure that all the employees know that they're expected to act professionally. Uh, to treat everybody with dignity and respect. And by intervening quickly, to the point, with the objective of improving the culture of the organization or the work group or the department, I think you have an obligation to do that. And, and those frequent interventions are part of the responsibility of mentoring or counseling uh, of your employees along the way. And I, I think they're appropriate. And if, if you're the leader and you send a fair and consistent message, Uh, that inappropriate conduct is not gonna be tolerated, that's gonna set the tone for the organization. And that tone needs to be audible. We talk about the tone at the top, but if you're the leader, you gotta set that tone and, and do it often, do it consistently, and do it fairly in the organization. So I think that's an important part of intervention. If you're the leader, you have an obligation to.
1: Intervening really is at the heart of leadership. Like Bill said, it's one of the ways that leaders mentor their team and how they set the tone. And if leaders don't intervene, they endorse the behavior. Bill actually has a really fun story about that. Okay, I've, I've
0: had a, a situation once. I was in charge of a warehouse operation, and quality of the product was very, very important. And I was walking through the warehouse one day, and a forklift driver comes around the corner and put the tongs of his forklift straight through one of our wrapped packages of uh, mining parts. <laughs> and you don't know if he's caused damage or... And I'm standing there, and I'm looking at him, And he stopped the forklift and I just didn't even have to say anything to him. That was intervention enough. He just (laughs) shook his head, got off the forklift, opened the package to make sure he didn't do any damage. But had I walked away, I would have sent a message that, you know, we don't really care about the quality of our parts. Yeah, you can drive unsafely around the warehouse. That would be okay. So you really do have to intervene because when you don't, that's acting. It's uh, sending a signal that you don't care. that's appropriate behavior, or you'll cause confusion in your organization. So I think you have to act.
1: A tricky part of this is correcting the wrong behavior without making things worse. One pitfall is that if a leader criticizes, it invites other people to join in.
0: You're right, that, that happens. I, I don't know what it is, but in corporations, when a person is uh, being criticized or getting a performance view or whatever, there's almost like piling on. Uh, That other people want to jump on and and add to that that issue. So I think if you keep it very focused and based on the facts of the issue and don't allow other people to bring in uh, issues that aren't really pertinent to what this current issue is, I I think that'll help. But boy, people do like to pile on whenever you get into these situations like that, and it's very, very difficult. That's also another reason why you don't want to be calling people out on every little thing instead call them aside and give them some personal counseling and hopefully that'll correct the matter so and and it works i found another other step that works is I, i've gone to individuals and say i i have some input on some of your behavior that i saw yesterday and if you want it let me know <laughs> and sure enough wait but the next day, or maybe a couple of days later, they come to your office and say, hey, you remember you mentioned you had some input for me? Yeah. Would you give me that? I yeah. found out that does work.
1: Yeah. Who's, who's not going to follow up on that one, right? <laughs> I think this is a great And it tempers it, right? Because they come in ready for some bad news. And so they're ready to hear it, maybe in a better mindset than if you just sort of delivered it unsolicited right up front. You can see why I love learning from Bill. He is so skilled as a professional and as a leader. And the thing is, these are skills that everyone can learn. To drive that point home, I want to end with a great story. This isn't about a time when Bill intervened, but when he coached someone else, a plant manager at Alcoa. Look for the kind of skills that we've talked about. Things like gathering the facts, seeking perspective from others, acting confidently, and setting the tone as a leader.
0: That was in a North Carolina plant that we had. The plant was 37% black employees. It was a union plant. And on the day in question, the plant manager drives onto the property, and his HR manager met him as soon as he came in and explained the situation, that they had one employee who was uh, notorious for uh, causing trouble and things like that. And he drove onto the property with a four-foot by eight-foot Confederate flag hanging off the back of his truck. And the black employees were complaining that they didn't like that. So the HR manager asked the plant manager, what are you going to do about it? Well, the plant manager wasn't even from the United States. He was born and raised in England. Uh, He didn't have an appreciation for the Civil War, for the flag, uh, or for many racial issues for that matter. So he called me and said, here's the situation. What should we do? And I told him, I'm not the right person either. I was born and raised in the north of the United States, which is completely different from the south where this plant was located. I said, let's call a friend. So I called Harold into the room and we spoke on a conference call. And Harold started talking about racism and bigotry and what that flag stands for. And it almost brings tears to your eyes when he told you from his perspective what that meant to him. So the plant manager took that information and decided he would act on it. He went to the employee and asked him, would you take down the flag? He said, no. He said, okay, then you are not permitted to fly that flag on company property. He said, you're free to fly it. You have freedom of speech, but not on this property. And he uh, ordered him to uh, park away from uh, the property, which was a burden. Uh, The next closest place where he could park was probably close to a half mile walk to the plant. Mm. And, And he did that. But that sent a pretty strong signal to the whole organization, I believe, that the plant manager did care and that the plant manager was going to intervene whenever he determined that it was appropriate. And sure enough, the the next day, the Wall Street Journal cut wind of this story. And on the front page in the center column, they had the story about this plant manager, at the plant in North Carolina, that uh, ordered the employee to take that flag down or park off the property. And he came across rather, rather positive. Sometimes we think these issues are minor, they'll blow over, but often that's not the case. Uh, people are going to notice when things like this happen. So that that plant manager came off very, very positive. And think how the rest of those employees felt. I think he sent the message that when you have a legitimate issue, you bring it to me, I'll act and I'll act appropriately.
1: I think he did. Imagine being that plant manager, seeing your decision in the Wall Street Journal. Think of how relieved you would feel for having done the right thing. This is actually a common tool for ethical decision-making called the front page test. Would you act this way? if it ended up on the front page of the news. Now, it's not likely that that will happen to you, but it sure helps you to think deeply about your character and integrity. Pretty much everyone prefers to be known as an ethical person, to have a reputation like Bill O'Rourke's. But no one ever got that reputation by making easy choices. Being known for your integrity means that people saw you stand up for what's right. It's a reputation that you earn. Many, many thanks to my friend, Bill O'Rourke, for teaching us how to be more confident and ethical people. If you'd like to book a speaking engagement with Bill, there's a link in the show notes to learn more. I try to have him come as a guest speaker in all of my ethics classes. And the day when he speaks is easily one of my students' favorites, something I try not to take too personally. If you enjoy How to Help, please take a moment to give us a positive review in your podcast app. This helps us to reach more listeners. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get future episodes automatically. Next time, we're going to talk about the idea of meaningful work. Nine out of ten people say that they would take less pay if it meant they had a job with more meaning. My guest is philosopher and professor Andrea Veltman, who has thought in deep and sometimes provocative ways about why we work and how we find meaning in our work. This is an episode that's going to change the way you think about the job that you have and the job that you want even if they're already the same thing. To stay up to date with how to help, subscribe to our weekly email newsletter. Each edition recommends high-impact organizations and shares ideas for how to have more meaning in your work. You can find it at how 2 helpcom We're grateful, as always, to Merit Leadership, who sponsors this podcast, and to our production team, which included Cindy Hall, Travis Stevenson, yours truly, and Eric Robertson, who did the editing and the music, Our music comes from the Pleasant Pictures Music Club, and if you want to use their music in your projects, you can find a link and a discount code in the show notes. As always, thank you so much for listening. I'm Aaron Miller, and this has been How to Help.